When I hear someone being described as an operative, I can't help but think in terms of special ops, right? Black ops, people who have a very particular set of skills, like Jack Bauer or James Bond or Jason Bourne. Apparently, it helps to have the initials JB. So if you have the initials JB, you're halfway there to getting a license to kill, maybe. These elite operatives are called in to do the impossible, right? They're sent on missions that few, if any, other agents would be able to accomplish. But of course, being operative isn't just for double O's or Delta Force. In its everyday sense of the word, operative simply just means functioning, right? Or having effect. It describes something that is ready for use, something that's put together properly and powered sufficiently to operate according to its purpose. You and I are meant to be operatives, carrying out heavenly functions in the world today. When the Bible describes what we are as Christians, it uses images like a body or soldiers or servants or ambassadors. They're all images of activity, people who are doing things, uh, 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 individuals who are in motion, who are on some sort of uh, purpose, on a walk somewhere. And so our purpose is not simply to commemorate the work that began on the day of Pentecost, but to continue it in our day-to-day lives. The book of Acts is not meant to simply be impressive to us or even just inspiring that as we read it, we're like, wow, that was really cool what God did back then. Those were the days, right? That's not the idea. It's meant to be instructional to us as well as, as Christians ourselves who carry on where these Christians in Acts left off. When you get to the last page of the book, most of you know this, you notice that there's no conclusion. There's no the end at the end of the book. It's more like the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, where there's no resolution at all. Instead, the team splits up to take on quests of their own, right? They have a common set of goals, but then walk in different roads in different directions, fighting the good fight in different parts of the world until the king returns and the story finally concludes. I was, <laughs> I was watching the, the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, many years ago uh, with, with someone who wasn't familiar with the story, wasn't familiar with the books, and apparently wasn't familiar with the fact that it was going to be a trilogy. And as the credits rolled, they audibly said aloud, that's it? And uh, I said, we had to explain, well, it's, they're gonna make, there's three movies, there's two more coming. Anyway, that was fun. But that was, uh, that's us, right? We're sent out on a mission, empowered and directed by God in all sorts of different places and in all sorts of different circumstances so that we can fulfill his incredible purposes through us. We want to consider Uh, What we want to consider as we look at our passage tonight is how we can properly function as operatives for the Lord. In our text tonight, we're actually given three operatives to study or to look at. They've got different backgrounds, different circumstances. They're certainly at different levels of experience and capability, but each of them is used by God in these verses to accomplish some really great, significant work and therefore have things to teach us. We begin in verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. The first operative tonight is an angel sent by God to give a message of direction to Philip. Now, we, of course, are not angels. We're not going to become angels. But what can we learn from his part in this story? There's a devotional thought for us in his example. Think about the amazing power and the amazing capacity and capability of an angelic being. 
Uh, we get glimpses of just what angels are capable of as we read through the Bible. All of their strength and their potential and their effectiveness. They who stand in the presence of God. They who can travel between time and eternity. Doesn't it seem like this angel is overqualified for the errand he was sent on that day? Go down to Samaria and tell a guy to go to Gaza. That's your job today. And this angel is in the, uh, you know, in heaven, in glory of glory, there before the throne of God. And they call his name and he says, okay, I'm getting sent out to do something. Maybe I'm gonna wipe out an Assyrian army or maybe I'm gonna do this or maybe I'm gonna do that. Go tell this guy, go to Gaza and then you're good. Then you're done. Uh, interesting. Philip was a man also we know who, who knew how to follow God's leading, right? Uh, why didn't the Holy Spirit simply pass this message along to him? Certainly the Holy Spirit could have done so, but this shows us how God loves to include his creatures in his work. God, of course, has no need of any servants. He has no need of any messengers. He has no need of any helpers. Yet he loves to utilize his creatures all the same. It's an incredible attribute of his grace. What he could easily do himself in an instant, he shares with his family. Be rewarded for it. Hey, remember that job you did for me that I didn't need you to do, but I asked you to do anyway? Now I want to reward you for it. And that's not just true of angels. It's true for us. The Bible is very clear that God is going to reward his people for the things we do in his service. My little daughter, Nora, she loves to come out and help me wash the truck when we wash it. And I use the term help very loosely, obviously. She, of course, can't reach certain parts of the car. And uh, it, most of the time, it ends up just with her, like with her hands in the bucket, playing with the soap suds. And yes, in many ways, I would do the job better and faster if I just did it alone. But it's fun to have her help. It's silly. It's a great time. And I enjoy showing the kids how to do the job and sharing laughs and smiles together. It's fun, right? Well, God is our father. Uh, he's made us his children, the Bible says. And he feels uh, that fatherly love to a much, much greater degree than anyone like me or anyone else could ever feel towards our own kids, right? And so he wants to include us in his work and gives us opportunity to be a part of it. Now, this angel also demonstrates for us an important aspect of being fully operational in the Lord's service. No service or task for the Lord should be seen as beneath us, right? It was, in a sense, absolutely unnecessary for the Lord to send this mighty angel, but it was God's delight to include this angel in the work that day. And the angel doesn't balk, it doesn't, he doesn't complain, he doesn't say, are you kidding me? You, are you kidding? Like, can't, do I have to go down there? Can we do a dream message or what, what, what can we do? He doesn't do any of that. Maybe in the coming days, the Lord is gonna give you some small opportunity, some, some small task to do something that is downright beneath your talent or your ability or your experience or your maturity. Be like this angel and do whatever the Lord gives you to do. And what a beautiful thing it is that God is able to divide his, his great work down to even menial tasks of delivering simple messages, right? He can not just say, okay, well, I only can share my work with, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, I can share that. And, you know, the preaching on the day of Pentecost, I can share that, but that's all I got. All the jobs are taken. The Lord's able to divide down his work to, down to very, very small things, very simple things, 
the delivery of a letter, the delivery of a message. We've seen uh, in the testimony of Daniel, even the countenance of your face can be used by God for his purposes. And then he rewards us for those things that we participate with him in. As he says, hey, I'd like you to do this, and then we are faithful to do it. He says, that's wonderful. I'm so excited. And now I want to reward you for doing that. The verse ends, this is Desert Road. Luke is setting a scene for us here. Philip, you'll recall, has been busy in a vibrant time of revival and miracles in Samaria, a lot going on. People are getting saved left and right. And now the Lord says to him, leave all of that behind and go sit by yourself in the desert. Peter and John had come, but they left. And so Philip is still presiding, in a sense, over this great revival that has broken out in the Samaritan city. And, and the Lord just says, just leave all of that. And you're gonna go sit on a desert road somewhere. Sometimes we think of when the Bible says, when you're faithful over small things, then you will be given greater things, right? And that comes from that parable. And uh, you know, this isn't a teaching on that, but it's easy to hear that and kind of apply our own uh, temporal, maybe American mindset of upward mobility. Okay, as long as I do the small thing, then I'm guaranteed a promotion, right? That's not what we see in the Bible, and that's not what uh, the Bible really teaches of, uh, about, about ministry and about serving God, that our ministry will continually be growing in prominence and influence and scope as long as we're faithful along the way with the smaller things. The Lord doesn't use material measurements the way that we do. Here, Philip is being told to leave the crowd to go and speak to an individual. Now, from a material mindset, we say, no, 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 I'm being demoted here. I'm presiding over a great revival in a city. I, I don't need to go and talk to some guy. He doesn't even know where he's, what he's gonna be doing, but if we think about how this is being sketched out, why are you taking me away from a group of people so that I can talk to one person? I was faithful over tables. I graduated, I was promoted to be faithful over a revival, and now what? Well, in reality, the measurements that God is using are very different. And we don't know the mind of God, but we can look forward and say, well, well Philip, what is going to happen is you're gonna witness to one man, but then he's gonna take a message to an entire nation. And so a revival is gonna break out there and spread to a new continent. But if we just think about, hey, 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 wait a second. I started waiting tables, then I got to preach, then I was used to, to work miracles, then I was presiding over a revival. You want me to go and do what? You want me to go and sit on a desert road somewhere and maybe talk to one guy? That doesn't sound like you know, a greater thing to me. And so we need to be thinking about God measure, God's measurements and his mindset. And more importantly, we just need to obey when he leads us to do things, whether we think uh, they are a good idea or not. And so uh, Philip doesn't know any of this yet. Like Abraham, the Lord simply told him, head that way. You'll know it when you get there. And uh, the way was back down through Jerusalem and to Gaza in the south. Now, God specifically told him, you're gonna take the road from Jerusalem. And, and he's up north of Jerusalem. That means he's gonna have to travel back down into Jerusalem and down through Gaza. Why does that matter? Well, why did Philip leave Jerusalem a couple of passages ago? Because the Christians are being hunted down, brutally beaten, murdered, brought into prison by a guy named Saul. They escaped Jerusalem in order to, you know, escaped with their lives. And as they went, they were preaching the gospel. Philip was one of those people. And now the Lord comes to him a relatively short time later and says, head on back. You wanna go back? You wanna serve me? Go back to Jerusalem and walk through that city and head on down to uh, the south in Gaza. 
It's interesting. God was asking him to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There was no time for Philip to take the coastal highway. You see, God has a timetable he's working on here. We know the story, most of us. We know what's happening. We know that there's going to be what looks like a chance encounter, right, between Philip and this other guy. There's only a small window of opportunity for him to get where he needs to be so that when this chariot comes by, they can have this exchange. We don't have time for Philip to go down the Mediterranean coast and swing back up to avoid the danger of Jerusalem. And so he says, you're gonna walk through Jerusalem, you're gonna walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but fear no evil, I'm gonna be with you. And so to obey God at this point, Philip would have to trust the Lord with his very life, and he did so. Being an operative that's used by God means obeying the orders were given. This is a theme that's been coming up recently here at church, both on Wednesday nights and in our studies on Sunday mornings. As Christians, we no longer have the right to self-direct our lives. We just don't. What I think would be a good idea, I can have all the thoughts and opinions and plans that I want, but I do not have the right to make a plan for my own life. This is what I'm gonna do. This is my five-year plan. This is where I'm gonna live and move and do all these things. The Lord gives us freedom, but he directs us. He's supposed to be directing our paths and explaining to us what he would have us do, where he wants us to do it. And you know, it's really not a bad thing that he has taken control over the direction of our lives, right? Because if we go our own way, we're going to inevitably going to go astray. And we know that we can trust the Lord and that all of his ways are good. But the reminder here is that God's word is often going to challenge us and demand that we surrender. It will confront us in such a way that we either have to disobey or we bow before our king and say, nevertheless, at your word, I will. Philip was willing to obey this surprising command, and he is the next operative we want to look at, verse 27. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. I wonder how long Philip was hanging out on the deserted road before this encounter. Luke doesn't fill it in for us. Was the eunuch's caravan the first one that passed by? I don't know. What we can be confident of is that once Philip was in place, he must have been waiting with real expectation. Uh, looking down the horizon, he saw a blip that slowly grew large as it came toward him. He would have undoubtedly thought, okay, is this it? Is this the reason that I'm here? Is, is this the, the, the mission that God has sent me on today? Expectation is an essential part of our proper operation as Christians. We're to expect God's word to be speaking to us. We're to expect God to direct us. We're to expect God to do things when we gather together to worship him as a group. We're to expect God to bring people into our path that he wants us to minister to and share the gospel with. Expectation like this helps us to stay focused on heavenly things rather than be burdened and distracted with the cares of this world. And having spiritual expectation will help us not to miss subtle opportunities that the Lord might bring our way. Listen, probably none of us had an angel give us specific direction today of what the Lord wanted us to do, right? It would be convenient and nice if that happened, although it would be kind of alarming if that was happening all the time. But none of us had an angel appear to us today and say, hey, go and do this. 
But we know that the Lord still has work for us. And uh, in Ephesians, it talks about, hey, the Lord has set aside good works for each of us that we are to discover. And some of those opportunities are going to be more blatant. And some of those opportunities, all of you know from personal experience, are going to be more subtle. And you think, oh man, I almost missed that. Or if you're like me, I'll think back on something that happened earlier in the day and I think, oh, I wonder if I was supposed to, I don't know, minister to that person. (laughs) And so there are some opportunities that are uh, a little more of the still small voice type of opportunity than the loud angel showing up in your room kind of opportunity. And so expectation, spiritual expectation, helps us to know when those opportunities come around as we're being sensitive to the leading of the Spirit and expecting, okay, well, I expect God to use me today, and so I should be on the lookout for that, to stay focused uh, on those sorts of things. Um, Though every chariot we come across may not be our assignment, perhaps one of them is. And that expectation will help us stay in tune with what God may want to do. We don't know how the eunuch had heard about the God of Israel, but he had, and he believed, or at least he wanted to believe, And that in and of itself is another testament to the amazing, far-reaching grace of our God. He is constantly drawing people from every place uh, and every strata that they might know him and be saved. Uh, God had not forgotten the Ethiopians. Uh, this, this, This place that seemed closed to the gospel, how are they going to hear? This guy heard about the God of Israel. And in a moment, he's gonna hear about Jesus Christ, his savior. And so we see the wonderful, beautiful, merciful faithfulness of God's grace uh, exampled here that as people seek after the Lord, he, they, God will be found by them. God does not say, okay, well, I'm gonna hide myself away and a few select people will be able to find me one day and everybody else is just tough. What are you gonna do about it? The Lord is drawing all men to himself because he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Here we meet this fellow who had come to Jerusalem to worship and while in town, two significant things had happened. First, he would have learned that as a non-Jew, he did not have full access to the temple. That was probably uh, a little bit of a jolt. It would have been unusual for someone who had such power and such prominence, who had direct contact with the queen in her palace. He was the man in charge, and he would have learned, yeah, no, you can't come in here. We don't care who you are. Number one, you're a Gentile. Number two, you're a eunuch. You, you can't just come in here and, and do whatever you want to do in our temple. Uh, In fact, as a eunuch, he probably would have learned as he interacted with the scribes and the Pharisees that he could never be regarded as a full part of God's family even if he became a proselyte. He would have just said, you know, yeah, you can, you know, worship our God, but you'll never be a full-fledged member of the family of Israel. There were regulations against uh, full access to eunuchs and uh, they would have had to tell him that, at least as far as the Mosaic law was concerned. There were specific prohibitions directed at eunuchs. And you know, this probably is not what he envisioned when he first set out on his trip. It probably would have been a dramatic letdown for him. But the second thing that happened while he was in town is that he got a hold of God's word, at least the book of Isaiah. It could have been the whole Old Testament. Uh, We're just not sure. Now he's on the long road back to Africa and he's reading aloud from the scroll. Verse 30, when Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? 
Philip's such a great example to us of how to be an effective operative for the Lord. His first words to the eunuch are not, hi there, I'm Philip, a miracle worker. Uh, They're not, hi there, I'm Philip. You've probably heard of me. I'm very important. I'm an amazingly spiritual man. (laughs) He doesn't even introduce himself. Doesn't even tell him his name at this point. Instead, he just reaches out to him in kindness and says, hey, does that book that you're reading make sense to you? I don't know if you're ever reading a book and some stranger comes up and says, your book, I just want to read my book, right? But Philip had a compassion and he had a friendliness and he had a, a, a winsomeness and he came up, hey, do you understand this book that you're reading? His focus and his desire was to talk to this man about the word of God, not about himself or anything like that, not about the miracles he had worked or the manifestations he had seen. He wanted to talk to him about the word of God because it's the word of God that has power. It is alive and well and does not need to be smuggled in under a cloak of hyper sensationalism. Again and again, we see the Christians in this book focusing on the teaching and the understanding of God's word rather than focusing on experiences or feelings or manifestations. The apostles and these men like Stephen and Philip, they were preachers, not performers. And it is God's word preached through us that advances his work. Verse 31, the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Philip has been sent on a mission to bring this man to Christ, but we notice he he wasn't sent as a billboard, right? Uh, He wasn't just sent as an informational placard. He was sent as a guide. He says, hey, the guy says, knowingly, I need someone to guide me. And Philip says, oh, that's why I'm here. We want to take care that we don't just become billboard Christians, placard Christians that were silent and motionless. Uh, we're sent to do a personal work of bringing people to Christ and bringing Christ to them. You know, the eunuch was in need of actual answers, personal answers, real guidance. He needed someone who could explain what God's word was saying and interpret that truth for him. The Bible reveals that the unbelieving world is unable to receive the truth without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we are the ones that God has sent to accomplish that ministry through preaching so that people can believe. That's the deal. The eunuch needed a lot more than some little sign that just said, God's that way. Uh, That effectively is what he had somehow received in Ethiopia. You want to know God, he's in Jerusalem. And he had made this trip hoping to go and worship. Somehow at some point he had heard about the God of Israel and in his heart he had longed to know him. And so he makes this long trip and surely once he made it to the city, he would have been asking the locals, what's the deal? How do I worship your God? And probably would have said, yeah, the temple's over there. I don't know, go ask those people. And then he went to try to worship there among the crowds and among the Pharisees who of course had no real living relationship with the God that he wanted to encounter the Pharisees who had made the word of God of no effect, Jesus said. And so the eunuch found no real answers. And we find that he was left with even more questions after his long quest. At the end of his trip, he buys a scroll or two, packs up, uh, undoubtedly disappointed, and starts off home. But he's still hungry for salvation. And so he starts pouring into this scroll to try to figure something out about who God is and how he can be made whole as an individual. And he needed someone to walk him through the message of the gospel so that he might finally understand the truth he's been looking for. He needed real guidance. He didn't need cliches. He didn't need some kind of uh, one-size-fits-all program. He needed someone to guide him. And the Lord had sent Philip for just that purpose at just the right time. Verse 32. Now, the scripture passage he was reading was this. 
He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth? The eunuch found himself at what we call Isaiah 53, which means he would have read quite a bit already on the road. Specifically, he would have already made it through Isaiah 20 and 43 and 45. Why does that matter? Well, in those sections of the book, there are some not so encouraging things said about his home country, Ethiopia. Huh, that's interesting. (laughs) So here you are, one of the highest ranking officials of the nation, of this great world, world power, and this strange book from Israel has come into your possession. This, this, this place, Israel, whose God you believe in, he's, it's talking to you all of a sudden. Not only about judgments against your nation, but also about your personal iniquity that had to be laid on some suffering servant. Now, this is just a reminder that the Bible actually speaks to each of us if we will allow it to. It isn't antiquated, it isn't out of touch, it cuts right into who we are and where we are and what's going on in the world around us so that we might be reconciled to God. It speaks not just generically but with precision to you and me and to the circumstances we find ourselves in. You know, the the eunuch was centuries removed from the writing of Isaiah as well and all of a sudden he opens it, it feels to us as Luke tells the story almost at random and he's reading this book and oh man, it's talking to me about Ethiopia. Oh man, it's talking to me about my personal sin. What is going on here? The eunuch passed, uh, paused on this passage, which says that Christ was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and he just didn't know what to make of it. He was stuck there. Verse 34, the eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who's the prophet saying this about, himself or another person? And so Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. Philip's mode of operation here was to bring the eunuch back to the scriptures again. He was confused by the scriptures, but he says, hey, let's go back to the scriptures and let me guide you through this. They needed to be explained, but that's where the answers were going to be found that the eunuch was looking for. Not in feelings, but in revelation. And this passage demonstrates for us that God's word has real power for us and for others. It is a current message for God's people corporately. It is a current message for individuals. It comes with active direction. It comes with personal application. It comes with essential instruction for each day of our lives. This story is a profound example of just how personal and just how powerful God's word is. Why Isaiah? The scholars point out that when he quotes the passage, it's from the Septuagint. This guy had a lot of money. It probably makes sense that there's a good chance he bought the entire Old Testament, right? For sure he bought the Isaiah scroll, but money was no object for this guy. Right? And he was desperate to learn. And so why Isaiah, though? Of all the things he could have bought, of all the things he could have been reading, why Isaiah? Why was that scroll in the eunuch's lap that day? Well, we'll find it's because the Holy Spirit was not only working in Philip, he was working in the eunuch as well. And here we see a beautiful demonstration of how God uses his word to speak powerfully and precisely and how we can trust it to do so. There he had come across a passage that arrested his heart and attention, presenting him with his own sin, but also with a savior in chapter 53. And now suddenly he's in a conversation with some guy he just met on the road, a guy who can't wait to talk to him about the very book that he's reading. And then 
as he starts at that scripture they were stuck on, it says he moves forward, right? He begins at that scripture and starts talking to him about Jesus. And in just a few, what we would call paragraphs, over in what is now chapter 56, Philip would be able to read this to him. Let me read you Isaiah 56, 1, 3 through 5. It says, this is what the Lord says. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be a part of his people. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give for the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. Wow. Wow. That this man who was undoubtedly turned away at some part of the temple because he's a eunuch and say, yeah, you can't be a part of the family of Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees turning their nose up at him doubly for being emasculated and for being a Gentile, wanting no part of him, giving him no answers, giving him no hope. And suddenly he's encountered with somebody who actually knows Jesus and he says, let me talk to you about what the Bible says. And they start reading for just a few more minutes and all of a sudden this book that had already been talking about his nation is now talking to him about the foreigner who had committed his life to this God and, but he's a eunuch and he's wondering if, do I have any future? In a, do I have any spiritual future? Do I have any spiritual hope? And specifically God's word says, yes, you do. And Philip can explain to him and it's through Jesus Christ who can give you everlasting life right now. What a perfect book for this guy to be reading. Not a coincidence. This is the work of God. What a comfort it is to know that we don't have to rely solely on ourselves to convince or influence people to believe in Christ. God sends us out with power and he sends us uh, out to minister, but he sends his word out with power as well. While we minister from the outside, we can be sure that the Holy Spirit is working intricately and personally from the inside, bringing all of these elements together so that the scriptures can cut right in, show us who we are, who God is, what he has done, and how he wants to make people part of his forever family. Acts 8.35 says that Philip preached Jesus to him. Like the sermon given on the road to Emmaus, the text of the message isn't recorded, but we know what the focus of both of those silent sermons were, right? Jesus. As Jesus spoke to the two disciples, he revealed himself on the pages of scripture. As Philip spoke to this eunuch, he talked about Jesus. And so as we come to this, we realize I may not be a Bible scholar, but that's okay. If I'm a Christian, that means I have a Jesus to preach. I know the Messiah who has been revealed in the Bible. And though Christ himself would obviously teach a better message than me, He's given you and I the privilege of preaching to others, whether we're in a pulpit or whether we're in a chariot or wherever. What made Philip fully operational for this mission was that he was simply obedient and he was full of the Holy Spirit and he had Jesus to preach. He actually knew Jesus Christ, not theoretically, but personally. And we can have more and more to preach about Jesus as we walk with him and draw near to him day after day. Verse 36, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? 
Clearly, Philip didn't just deliver facts about Jesus. He told the eunuch how a person must follow Christ as savior and king. We don't know how long their conversation lasted, but by the time they got to a body of water, the eunuch understood that a person must choose to publicly identify with Christ and dedicate their lives to him, repent of their sins. As operatives, we must make the message of the gospel personal by not just sharing information about God, but by sharing the imperatives that the Bible reveals about following him. It's not just about knowing there is a God, it's about choosing to follow him, to turn from sin and instead accept Jesus Christ's forgiveness, to repent and be saved. Verse 37, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Philip didn't add any requirements or works to the eunuch's shoulders. He was clear and straightforward. God had been clearly orchestrating countless elements to bring this situation together that day. And then in that moment, we see how, all, how simple it was for the deal to be done. Think of all the things that the, the Lord God would have been working for weeks, if not months, to work all of this together so that at that moment on the desert road, they can have this encounter. And then when it's time, what a simple, beautiful in one sense, easy thing to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. The Lord has done all the heavy lifting, right? The Lord has made the way on Calvary. The Lord has delivered and preserved his word. The Lord has sent the Holy Spirit. The Lord has filled us up and sent us out. He does the heavy lifting, and now we are just to follow after in the mission that he's given us. Verse 38, and then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch did not see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip didn't have to be an apostle to qualify for all sorts of service to the Lord. He was a man ready to be used, ready to obey whether that meant waiting tables or preaching a message or having a conversation or interacting with demon-possessed people. Uh, he was fully operational and powered up. And as a result, he changed the world. He changed human history. And even though he had been used to work miracles, you know, this was the better work that day. I'm, I'm guessing at some point on the desert road, he thought, man, <laughs> I could be in Samaria like healing cripples right now. But this was clearly the better work, the more significant thing that day. You and I are ministers of the gospel just like Philip was a minister of the gospel. We too can be used by God for his great work. And the work of God isn't just reserved for a few special spiritual operatives like James Bond or Jack Bauer or whoever. The Lord invites all of his people who are ready to function, ready to be powered up and sent out. And he says, okay, who, who wants to go? Who's, who, who wants to head into the harvest and be a part of that? There's one more operative in the story we can learn from before we're finished, and that's the eunuch himself. He got saved, and we're told that coming up out of the water, he didn't see Philip again, but he goes his way rejoicing back home to Ethiopia as the only Christian in the entire nation. He's the only one who knows Jesus in the entire country. I found myself thinking, wait a minute, this dude has only heard one Bible study in his entire life. He needs more training. He needs more development. He needs more instruction. Let's get him into some kind of program. 
If the angel was overqualified for his mission, the eunuch seems to be terribly underqualified to bring the gospel to a closed country. There were no churches there, no Bible schools, no apostles, no miracle workers. But you know, in this case, the Lord looked at this eunuch and said, you're good, you're good to go, cleared for entry. Uh, He would be the only Christian in Ethiopia upon his return. But you know, church history records that through him, the gospel went out with power. He had returned home as an operative, powered up with the word of God in his hands and the Holy Spirit in his heart. And though yet he wouldn't have an understanding of every scripture, of course, he wouldn't know every teaching, obviously. We know that he had all the training he needed to start being used by God. He could be used right then as he progressed in his faith and as he progressed in his understanding and his knowledge of the Lord, but he was still ready to be used right then. Because if he was saved, then he knew enough to tell other people how they can be saved. And so we see that he also knew he had been shown by Philip how to get a greater understanding of God's word. And that's to look at Christ on every page and to let scripture comment on scripture. And so he understood from this discussion with Philip how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to dig into it. And because of the sufficiency of scripture and because of the power of the Holy Spirit, he was sufficient to begin work as an operative. The encounter ends with the eunuch heading south, rejoicing, Philip heading north, preaching. Where there had been one servant of God, now there were two. The eunuch had become another one of God's vineyard workers sent throughout the world to save lives for time and for eternity. He was immediately equipped and deputized to be an effective operative for the kingdom. And so as we close, we remember that we are God's operatives. We're meant to be on the move. We're meant to be activated. We're meant to be doing stuff for the Lord. Maybe we have specialized skills. That's fine. Maybe we don't. That's fine too. What matters is not our qualifications, but our functionality. Are we ready to function in God's service according to what he wants us to do? Are the pieces in our lives in place for us to be used by God? Maybe the Lord will give us some great prominent work to be a part of, or maybe he'll just pick up one little spiritual brick and put it in our hand tomorrow and says, go put that one little brick just over there. That's all I need you to do. We can trust him either way and know that if he sent us out to work, the work is significant in his elaborate plan for this world. And we can rejoice that he has commissioned us to be a part of it in his grace. We can trust that God sends us out with real power and real direction We're not meant to just float aimlessly as disciples, but to follow his leading, to follow his orders. We are operatives who are able to accomplish incredible, impossible things because of the power of God working in and through us. And we stay operational as we trust the Lord, as we obey his leading, as we allow ourselves to be directed by the Holy Spirit, and as we rely on the word of God in whatever situation we find ourselves in.